this is a great pleasure to come to your university and talk, talk about this topic. I'm a scientist. I'm a professor at a university and also at a, a research institute. And so this topic of technology transfer is something that I've experienced from the university side. And in fact, it's one of the main reasons I'm a, associated with the Translational Genomics Research Institute, because translating and moving intellectual property into the commercial workspace is very difficult from uh, the university standpoints. And sometimes you need an organization uh, like a nonprofit to help you in that process. <clears throat> My research is in genomics. I work in the genes of different organisms. But in particular, I've worked on bacterial pathogens. The bacterial pathogens that I've worked on the most involve those that are involved with biological weapons. So I'm most known for anthrax research. In fact, my laboratory has worked on the anthrax attacks of the Amshenrikyo in 1993. And in fact, we analyzed the DNA from Tokyo after the cult sprayed anthrax over the, that suburb. But what I'll talk about today is a role that I played on a, on a national advisory board for the last 10 years. I was one of the founding members of the National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity, which advises the US government on dual use research of concern. I was the chairman of this board for three years, most recently during some very controversial periods of time when dual-use research involving biological agents such as the avian influenza virus uh, came to the board for policy decisions and policy discussions. Now, dual-use research in this context, we're talking about research that can be used for good, but also can be used for bad. We know that the biomedical sciences, the life sciences, and this its research underpins very important things in our society. Biomedical and public health advances are made by life scientists, improvements in agriculture, the safety and quality of food is, is supported by this research, environmental quality, the ecology of life, and indeed a strong national security and the econ economics of our countries is dependent upon life sciences research. But unfortunately, we know that good science can also be used for bad purposes. This was driven home in the United States following September 11, 2001, when a series of letters were mailed around the United States which contained anthrax spores. This use of a biological agent scared the American public and motivated the US government to regulate life sciences to prevent this type of occurrence from happening. There was a group put together at the National Academy of Sciences, which is one of our most premier institutions of science in the United States. And they came together, scientists from around the United States and policymakers. And out of this meeting, in, the meeting was carried out in 2002 and 2003. The report was finally published in 2004. And this is the Biotechnology Research in the Age of Terrorism Report. And it was chaired by a scientist named Jerry Fink. And so sometimes we refer to this as the Fink Report. So what they concluded was the same technologies that can be used legitimately for human betterment can be misused for bioterrorism. 
One of the recommendations of the Fink Report was the establishment of an independent uh, advisory board which would advise the U.S. government on biological research and how it can be misused. It was established then the National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity. Again, I was one of the founding members of the NSABB. This board uh, is, a is a U.S. government, we say USG, U.S. government-wide initiative. So the board is actually advisory to all agencies of the U.S. government. While we reported directly to the Health and Human Services Secretary, and we were staffed and run by the Office of Biotechnology Advisory, OBA, uh, we actually were advising then all 15 departments and agencies that conduct, fund, or have an interest in life sciences research. So basically the entire U.S. government uh, had to listen to what we had to say. Now we were charged with making recommendations on strategies for mitigating the potential for misuse of dual-use biological research. We had to consider both national security concerns and the needs of the, of the research community as well. This is a very hard balance to strike. Over the last decade, we've been very prolific. We've written thousands of pages of recommendations, including the rationale for why these recommendations should be put forward. On this screen, then, there are a series of these different reports. Some of them involve how you communicate science to the public without scaring them. Others have to do with how you uh, manage and regulate a new uh, emerging field of biology, such as synthetic biology. I'll talk more about that in a second. We offered up a, a document for the oversight of dual-use research which recommended uh, a number of different things for how you manage uh, dual-use research in a university and other environments. These reports are present online at the OBA uh, website, and that, uh, the, uh, the website is then listed at the bottom of that slide. You can go there, and uh, I have to say these are very well-written reports. We had an excellent staff who would correct our English whenever we made mistakes, which is often. So perhaps most important of all of our reports was the oversight framework for dual use research of concern, or what we call DURC, D-U-R-C. Uh, we developed a framework for the oversight which includes steps in the local oversight of dual use research. One of the most important recommendations we made was is that dual use research be regulated by the local institutions. Local institutions, universities, and research institutes must take responsibility for this and be the primary gatekeeper or regulator for, for controlling the misuse of biological research. We established criterion and guidance for identifying what dual-use research of concern is. I'll talk more about this in just a moment. But since all life science research could be misused, it's important to differentiate between the average uh, level of risk and an elevated level of risk. We developed tools for assessment to manage the dual-use risks. Uh, we developed tools for the responsible communication of research. Often it's the miscommunication or irresponsible communication by researchers and scientists that inflames the public unnecessarily that is the biggest problem. 
we identified that the we identified the responsibilities of those conducting the life sciences research, what is their role in this, and we also established a code of conduct for dual use research. All this is available at our website. Now, when you regulate research, and especially research uh, dual use concern, there's a need for a balance. First off, you want to prevent the misuse of research, but on the other hand, you don't want to prevent the, for the research from occurring if it's critically important for our national and, and global concerns. It's possible that even research that has uh, great potential to be misused needs to be performed. And so you have to decide what type of regulation you will use, what type of, of safety controls you will use to prevent it being uh, harmful. And finally, it's possible that in this process of regulating research to prevent it being misused, that you actually prevent very innovative and creative research uh, that has no risk at all. So the regulation here has to be very carefully done and it has to be balanced in a way that we minimize the impact on valid research and creative research from going forward. So part of this really has to do with distinguishing between average research and that which is of greatest concern. So, <clears throat> uh, so because most research has some potential, the goal here is to identify the subset that has the highest potential for, uh, for generating information that could be misused or DURC, D-U-R-C, which is different than from just dual use research. Our goal is to identify D-U-R-C, or dual use research of concern. So we came up with a definition or a criterion for identifying this. This dual use research of concern then is research that based upon current understanding can be reasonably anticipated to provide knowledge, products, or technologies that could be directly mis misapplied by others to pose a threat to public health, agriculture, plants, animals, the environment, or material. So this definition <clears throat> of dual use research of concern has a number uh, of words in it which are very subjective, okay? So based upon current knowledge means that we have to worry about research which can be immediately applied uh, reasonably anticipated, those words mean that uh, there can be disagreement. What is reasonable? You may think that one thing is reasonable and I may think another one is. And importantly, it talks about directly misapplied. So dual use research of concern is that which can be misapplied today, not five years from now, 10 years from now. It doesn't take any imagination or fantasies to, imagine, to understand that this could be applied today and have detrimental effects. So identifying dual use research of concern is a very difficult thing. Now as a part of this, we also identified seven types of experiments which are uh, particularly uh, uh, of concern. And so I, I'm not going to go into these in great details. These are technical experiments, but they, have, they involve the ability, uh, research that would, for example, uh, create an organism which was resistant to antibiotics or vaccines or ones that could evade the immune system. And so there are seven of these. Uh, we came up with these and these were modeled after the Fink report. And in the Fink report, they were referred to as the seven deadly sins. So these are experiments that are of great concern. Now, very importantly, these experiments 
could be critical for improving health or protecting health from uh, future uh, biological problems. And it, just because they're of concern does not mean they can't be done, but they have to be done in a very careful and thoughtful way. One of the concerns that arose after the anthrax letter attacks was a concern that the scientists themselves were not responsible, were not caring. In 2008, the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, identified an American scientist as the, as the perpetrator of the anthrax letter attacks. When this information became <clears throat> well known to the uh, public in the United States, uh, they became very suspicious of scientists and thought that scientists were in fact the problem here. We believe the NSABB recommended, uh, came back and made recommendations relative to how we can change this. First off, we think that there was no need for a, a nationwide <clears throat> uh, program for regulating scientists. Rather, uh, we recommended that in fact at local levels, there be a system that would create a culture of responsibility. So a cultural responsibility is something that scientists need to, take need to develop uh, internally. So we need to be able to develop this culture where we, we promote ethics and we promote uh, uh, behaviors and conducts that will help, so help uh, build confidence in the American people or in the global people as well as in governments that scientists are, are doing things correctly. Now, the scientific process is not just a one-time event. It starts with perhaps an idea, the conceptualization of, of our product. And then once in America, once we have an idea, we have to get funding or money in order to do this research. Once we have that money, we conduct the research. As we start getting data and findings, we go out and we discuss these research findings at scientific meetings. We start to go through a publication process which involves peer review and eventually then we hope that we publish these scientific articles in, uh, in scientific journals so that the world can know about it. This culture of awareness and responsibility must be embedded in scientific researchers so that they uh, consider this the potential for misuse at every one of these steps. And so it's not just a, you can't just put a check in place at the very end of this process when things are being published but rather it has to be embedded in the entire process. One of the things that uh, I would like to uh, advocate here is in fact, this cannot be something done by a single country. It has to have international engagement. It has to be done on a global basis. There has to be some type of a culture of responsibility for all scientists in all countries. And so the NSABB has made a number of recommendations. Again, you can find these on our websites for how you promote these types of ideas in, in, in an international setting so that in fact uh, the uh, consideration of dual use research is something that goes across countries. Now in the last three years when I was chair of the NSABB, uh, when I was chair of this board, a particular set of experiments came to the forefront and these are what we call gain of function experiments. Scientists were taking pathogens and, and creating new functions, new biological properties in these pathogens that were very disturbing to people in the public as well as many of us on the science side of the board. So in this case, the gain of function experiments, the definition would be when a pathogen gains a novel biological property either through traditional um, methods or through advanced genetic engineering methods. 
An example of this would be mammalian transmission, increased virulence, uh, conferring drug resistance, antibiotic resistance to a bacterial pathogen, or, allow, or manipulating a pathogen so it could evade the immune system. Now, the mammalian transmissibility in particular, this gain of function, uh, was an experiment that arose during a number, uh, during a couple of high-profile scientific papers. And in fact, one of the scientists involved was a Japanese scientist named uh, Yoshi uh, uh, Kawaoka, who was working at the University of Wisconsin in the United States. And he was working uh, under the uh, funding of the National Institutes of Health, or the uh, US government. The other scientist was in the ne Netherlands, illustrating then that this issue of dual-use research is an international one. Well, so the avian influenza H5N1 virus is a virus that, as, it, as the name implies, is one that infects birds. And it has devastated uh, birds across much of the world now, killing chickens and ducks. And only seldom does it infect humans, but when it does, it's deadly. So there's about 600 cases, uh, known cases of human infection by the H5N1 influenza virus, and it's 60% of the time uh, the people die. So the mortality rate is incredibly high and very scary. So these two research groups, one in the Netherlands and one in the United States, conferred the ability of the thing that, sorry, let me step back. The thing that saves us from a, a major global pandemic in humans is the fact that these human cases, when they get infected, do not transmit to another human. So it's a dead-end infection. So these two research groups began to study the mutations and the genetic material inside the H5N1 virus to understand why that was the case. And sure enough, the two groups both figured out you could change the genes very slightly uh, by traditional methods of, of selection or by new genetic engineering methods. They could figure out how to make this virus transmit human to human to human. So the potential was there uh, that this virus could get into the human populations like our normal seasonal flu that we deal with, and it could take off and, of course, create a global pandemic. But in this case, the mortality rate at 60% uh, could be deadly. So these papers, two papers, one in Nature and one in Science, the two, two of the most prestigious scientific journals uh, in the world, uh, came to our board, and our board said, <clears throat> you know, you really shouldn't publish all this information not until we have a vaccine or drugs or some other thing uh, that would help uh, prevent a global pandemic. And so this became very controversial about whether we could publish these dual use research of concern. So this is an example of dual use research and an example of where the process early on did not work and where it became down to the reviewing of scientific papers at the very end to determine what should be done. Another example of this was the 1918 flu. Uh, in 1918, there was a flu virus, the H1N1 virus, which swept around the globe, maybe killed 100 million people uh, at the end of the, of the First World War, so in 1918. This virus was perhaps the most deadly vi virus to ever uh, encounter the human population, and most of these deaths occurred in about a six to eight week period. No part of the world was, was spared. Scientists in the United States uh, went back and resurrected this extinct. This virus is, went extinct, but scientists in the United States went back, determined the genetic sequence, and reconstructed this virus to understand exactly why it was so deadly. This was a very scary thing for the US uh, population. 
And in fact, with that genetic sequence available, then it, the fear was is that anyone could get, a, uh, get access to it. So this would be an example of a dual use research of concern and needed to be done in a very careful fashion. Finally, the last example I will mention is synthetic biology. This is, uh, this is Craig Venter. He's very famous. He was one of the first, uh, he was one of the leaders and pioneers in determining the human genome sequence. Uh, he has started a company, this is a private concern, which is, a, is expert at what we call synthetic biology. He was able from chemicals alone to create the, the genome, all the genes of a particular bacterium, and get it into uh, a living cell. So synthetic biology has incredible potential. Craig Venter says that the new economy of the world will be based upon these synthetic approaches to biology where we can take a bacteria or an organism, engineer it how we want to create whatever we want for the good and the benefit of mankind. Of course, the fear here is that someone could create something very deadly as well and that in fact uh, they could create a pathogen that we would have no defense against. So here again is an example of dual use research of concern. And this particular area is, is very problematic because this technology is becoming very accessible to many different people, even, even people who want to set up laboratories in their homes. And believe it or not, in the United States there are hobbyists or people who have a hobby of creating new organism and biology in their homes, in their garages, we say. So there is a document that we've put forward uh, suggesting different guidelines for how to deal with synthetic biology. But I will tell you that uh, our guidance and recommendations here are still uh, not adequate. We do not know how to control synthetic biology. We do not know how to regulate it. And it is an area of research that will explode and be very, very important. And there are very few uh, safeguards with that. So with that, I'll just leave you again with a slide. This is my final slide. This is the slide where you can go and see our reports. We've spent a lot of time talking about this. Uh, as a scientist, uh, I'm very, I have encountered over-regulation uh, many, many times. Uh, we've been, had to deal with export controls. These regulations and export controls uh, may be important for controlling the misuse of science, but they definitely have an impact on inhibiting science, inhibiting research and developing new ideas and approaches and, and scientific findings. And so the balance between regulation and letting science be innovative and creative is one that we're going to struggle with. There's no simple answer to this. Thank you.